It's been fairly normal at Decker Prairie for us to end a service and the elders to say there are no announcements. Let's just say the prayer, uh, which I think is a, a good path to follow for the most part. We've done that for the last few years that I've been here at least. But it has been notable to me that in the recent weeks, uh, we have had a rather lengthy series of announcements ranging in all different sorts of directions, and it just cannot go unnoticed. And I know that you feel that too. There's a lot of heaviness, um, a lot of grief and sorrow, a lot of struggle. There's a lot of joy. It's all mixed together in the various announcements that we've received. And upon some of that, I just happened to read Psalm 34. It was I've been reading through the Psalms, and I think it was Thursday morning um, after some fairly heavy news. This was the psalm I read, and I want to share it with you this morning. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blesses the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned." I have probably read the psalm about 30 times since Thursday, trying to think of just the right way to share thoughts with you from Psalm 34. And I finally came to the conclusion that there was no exact right way to do that, um, that I was just going to bring up some thoughts and some ideas, some, some key texts that I think stood out to me uh, in a systematic way. We're not going to just have a collage of words here, but... I think the psalm really speaks for itself, and that's the beauty of psalms. When you face various moments in your life and you're reading through the psalms, they speak to you as these writers are speaking to God about the things that they're going through. And that's why the psalms are so powerful. And here the psalmist speaks uh, the mind of one who is righteous. He's encountering these difficulties in life. For David, at least if the subscription is correct, uh, this is when he pretends to be mad. Uh, and likely this is true. Uh, I listened to Tommy Peeler talk some about this in a podcast he does. Uh, it's excellent if you can find it on the Psalms. Uh, but he quotes a commentator that points out the fact that 
in the psalm itself, there seems to be no real connection to that story in 1 Samuel 21, which probably just confirms the fact that it was about that, because why else would you have this subscription here? Uh, someone later didn't add it because it made them think of the story or something like that. This probably, some of them are original with the Psalms and some of them were, were added later. We aren't always sure. But David, he is running from Saul and he's going through numerous difficulties. He has his own people chasing him, trying to kill him, his own king, King Saul, who is trying to honor. Uh, and he is suffering want. He is hungry at times. His people are thirsty, the ones who are following him. He's gathering whoever he can to, to try to accomplish what he's trying to accomplish. God has made him promises, and yet time and time again, it seems like those things are not turning out to be so. And yet in the end, David realizes they are. He sees that he actually can trust God. He realizes, despite the things he sees around him and the difficulties he faces, that God is near him. He is by his side. He's bringing him through these very physical sorts of situations in David's life. But I hope that you notice toward the end of the psalm that there are actually things that David says in the psalm that are bigger than David, that I'm not even sure that David fully understood the depth of their meeting, and this is not the only time that this happens to David or to other prophets in Scripture. Often prophets say things that they don't understand the fullness of the meaning themselves, and we only later understand because it's revealed to us in the coming of the Messiah. And so I want to share that with you this morning and thinking about the facing of afflictions and difficulties, suffering like David is doing here, and how we perceive that, how we see that as God's people. I think it's interesting that David begins this concept, one who is, who is facing trouble from all around him, and yet he continues to arise unbroken from the situations he finds himself in. How is this happening? I don't know that David actually understands all of that, but the first thing he does and what he recognizes he needs to do as one who is continually protected by God is to have a commitment of blessing to God, to promise this praise that is going to come in his life. So he starts the psalm, I will bless the Lord at all times. That's a weighty statement. That's an easy statement to make when everything is wonderful and great. And when we aren't worried about anything, when there's no anxieties, we walk out on a sunny day and feel the sun in our face and everything is great in life. It's, it's simple to say, I will praise the Lord at all times in those sorts of situations. But that's not the circumstance that David is dealing with here in this psalm. He knows, obviously, where he's going and the things he's going to talk about and the struggles that he's had. And, and having faced those and experienced them, now he is making this promise of the future that he will praise God at all times, no matter what circumstances come in life. One of my favorite songs for a long time has been one that Matt Basford wrote called A Foretaste of Your Rest. And I'm just going to read a couple verses of it to you because I think it speaks to this concept so well. Gracious Father, friend divine, consolation of the blessed, you have touched this day of mine with a foretaste of your rest. Though tomorrow care may come, trial arise, and grief ensue, now I thank you for the time I have spent in joy with you. Should this hour of rest depart and the joy it brings me cease, I will bear it in my heart as a promise of your peace. When I strain beneath new woe or contend with future sin, from this moment I know you will bless my life again. So it's in those moments of joy that we have the assurance of who God is and what he's going to do that then carries us 
forward into the moments of struggle and difficulty. One of the things we see in this psalm is that being a saint, being one of the holy ones, being part of God's family doesn't mean that we never face affliction, that there's never any difficulties. We give our life to God, and then from then on, we never struggle anymore. That's not the message at all. And that's really not what's meant as we work our way through the psalm, and it reminds us to taste and see that the Lord is good, or some of these other phrases that we'll come back to later, that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. It doesn't mean that we never have any struggles, for later in the text it says in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. But there's something different. There's something unique about being part of God's And so for all those moments when life is wonderful, when we take our family vacations, and when we walk on the beach, and we see the sunset, and we climb the mountains, and we look into the eyes of the person we love, and we remember the life we've built together, and we welcome a child into the world, and we see their, see their first words and their first steps, when we get that great new job or a promotion, when we have the love of good friends, the joy of a spiritual family. We praise God for the glory and the joys of His creation. For the wisdom of His divine plan, we praise God at all times. But there's a sense in which all of that is also working for those moments when everything seems to go wrong. When life is pain, the betrayal of a friend, or a job that's lost, or a disconnected marriage, or various other struggles that we work through, miscarriage, and then another miscarriage, sickness, disease, grief, loss of a child, loss of a parent, loss of a friend, facing the consequences of sinful choices, all the various things in life that then bring bad into our life instead of good. Right? That's the contrast we find in Psalm 34. He's contrasting this idea of, of evil, which is just the idea of bad, with, with good. So later in the text, keep your tongue from evil, from bad things. Turn from bad, turn from evil, and do good. Seek and pursue peace. This is the instruction he's giving in terms of the fear of the Lord. And so when the bad things, when the evil things come in life, praise God for the glory and the joys of new creation for the wisdom of God's divine plan, the joy of redemption and restoration, the hope of understanding that what we have here is not all there is. And so then those good moments, those wonderful moments, we praise God for what we have, for the goodness of His creation, but in the bad moments, we praise God for the glory of new creation, what is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. And in essence, we can encapsulate this whole concept within a single phrase. It is that one. That what sets God's people apart is the hope of new creation. That this is not it. There's going to be something more. And as we face those trials and the difficulties and the tears and the sorrow and the grief, we realize there's something far greater working for us, an eternal weight of glory. There is a living hope. that God has promised us. And with that knowledge, we promise a life of praise and devotion. The psalmist then goes on to talk about the need to seek refuge 
in God. At times we feel crushed. We feel brokenhearted. But when our hope is in God, we can arise unbroken in the glory of God's grace. That's really the message that David is portraying here, and really, I think, in a recounting in some ways of his own story, and then maybe some of the things he's seen around them. So he's recounting his own times of difficulty, but also he's seen the difficulties of various others, and he's seen God come to their aid. He is the leader of God's people, and so he's seen so much. And now he wants to tell the world about it. He begins with himself in this testimony, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. He's going to go on to give instruction that I mentioned earlier. What is it to be righteous? And he's, he's going to describe what that looks like, right? Staying away from evil and doing good and seeking peace. And that makes you one of the righteous. If you want to be one of those who can cry out to God and God will hear and he will answer and he will deliver, there's a certain way of life. And, and David briefly describes that, and I'm not going to go down that road too much this morning, but that is an important part of the text, that the righteous cry out in the Lord's ears. It's not those who, in the moment of need, in the sudden desperation, then decide they're going to make supplication to the Lord. No, that, that's not how this works. The life of, of gratitude, the life of praise, the life of devotion to, to God then goes hand in hand with the supplication that God hears. That's what David's saying. And the man who seeks refuge in the Lord is blessed. He is blessed because God sees and hears him. That's what he's telling us in verse 4, but particularly in verse 15, he does this um, sort of, it's called anthropomorphication of God. The eyes of the Lord, we know God doesn't literally have eyes. The ears of the Lord, no, he doesn't literally have ears, but he wants us to understand the nature of God's attention, that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. So it's important that we are among the righteous. His eyes are toward us. His ears hear their cry. And then a couple of verses later, he says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them. And then a passage, probably not the most famous passage in this text, but maybe second. Look and see, it says in, in verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Probably the most well-known text. But then the second, I think, would be verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. It's an interesting paradox between feeling crushed and not actually being broken. Now we're going to take this a little further here in a few minutes to an end that is more grand. But I believe the text leads us toward. But for the moment, I just want us to understand that seeking refuge in God is done because we know He hears, we know He sees, we know He answers. As David says in verse 4, when I sought the Lord, He answered me. He's not left abandoned, forsaken. The Lord protects and He provides in verse 7. Continuing from there, he, he surrounds him. The angel of the Lord encamps around. He protects, particularly for David, this would have had significant meaning as he is facing various physical battles. And God seems to continue to protect him. The, the principle and the idea, though, continues on for God's people that he surrounds us, he protects us. And we see this a number of times in Scripture. God is there to provide. In verse 8, it's the verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. 
And then he gives this strange image of this lion. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Even in a time when the most fiercest of beasts can't provide for himself and for his young, the one who fears the Lord will lack no good. That's the idea. The lion is the king of beasts, right? He, he can always preserve himself and his young. But in those moments, whether it's famine, drought, whatever's happening, and where the lions themselves are in hunger, God's people lack no good thing. He provides. And God is near. So in the moments when we are brokenhearted and we are crushed, and we feel grief and we have sorrow, we also can know that we have God's protection. And we can trust in God's redemption, His restoration. This is, in essence, kind of a sub-point of what we just talked about, the idea of seeking refuge in God and the importance of that for the righteous. And an element of that that I want to then build on a little deeper is the concept of redemption, which is, is talked about in a number of ways in the text. Repeatedly, it talks about deliverance. For in verse 4, he delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, that poor man he talks about cried out, the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord surrounds and he delivers them. Repeatedly throughout the text is this theme or this concept of deliverance, of salvation, even redemption in the end. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who will take refuge in him will be condemned. And a particular interest at the end of the psalm is the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Everyone's going to face affliction. Affliction's going to come upon all, but the difference is in the outcome. The wicked are going to be slain by the affliction they face. There is no answer. There's no one to hear. There's no one who cares. There's no one who protects. There's no one who provides. And so affliction will slay the wicked, verse 21. And the ones who hate the righteous and their God, they will be condemned. But the contrast comes in what happens to those who are afflicted but have the Lord nearby, at hand. The Lord is their comforter. He saves their crushed spirit. And so although they are crushed and they are in grief, they remain unbroken. But one of the most amazing parts of this text is really not how David is affected by this or even how we are affected by this directly, in essence, but the nature of how this psalm speaks to God's plan in general. And so we praise the Lord at all times for the glory and for the joy of His creation and for new creation, but also His divine plan. And His divine plan is surrounded by this concept of the Messiah who is going to come and bring redemption to the world, which this text speaks toward. John 19 and verse 36, and recording the crucifixion of Jesus talks about the coming of the Passover, and of course this idea in verse 20 that he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken certainly ties in with the concept of Passover, which is the, in the midst of what's happening here in the crucifixion story. But there's also no doubt that it ties into Psalm 34, to a righteous sufferer, to the one who comes and has devoted himself to the Lord and to the accomplishment of his will, who has trusted and sought refuge in God, who has trusted in his redemption, his restoration, and then is going to be rewarded. And so the text tells us that the Passover is near, 
They want to get these men off the cross. They go out and they break the legs of the two thieves so they'll die faster. But when they come to Jesus, he's already dead. And there's no need to break his legs. And John tells us in this account that is to fulfill the Scripture that he keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. There's a word in the early part of this psalm that caught my eye that Brother Peeler also talked about in his podcast. In, in verse 5, it says, those who look to him are radiant. What does David mean by this? The, the sufferings and the difficulties and the afflictions, how can someone be radiant in the midst of those? I think in some ways I don't even have to explain it because you understand what it looks like for someone to suffer with confidence. To go through affliction and difficulty knowing they can fully set their hope on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that will be revealed to them in His coming. But it is of particular interest, I think, that in Isaiah 60, this is the only other time this word is used. Uh, and this is a text, you may remember some, some uses of this concept in the New Testament, uh, the armor of the Lord in, verse, in chapter 59. It's, he's going to put on a breastplate uh, he's going to have righteousness and a helmet of salvation, and he's going to put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He's going to wrap himself with zeal, and God is going to come and save his people. That's the story in Isaiah 59. He, this Redeemer is going to come to Zion, and he's going to deliver his people from their transgression. He's going to save them. And then chapter 60, which is really just following from that same concept, says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And there's all sorts of meaning and depth there, like you are the light of the world, as Jesus says later on in the Sermon on the Mount, where he is, he's radiating light and his people then are, are going to take that and they're going to shine. That's what this text tells them to do. But in talking about the restoration, about God's deliverance and about redeeming his people, it says in verse 5, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. It's the glory of God's divine plan. The joy that comes not because life is so good all the time, because we, we know that living a good life doesn't mean life's always going to be good. The, the text makes that very clear. And so the radiance of the face, the fact that our faces will never be ashamed, is not connected to the idea that things are always good and wonderful in life. No, it's connected to the idea that God's will is going to be accomplished, that God is going to deliver his people, and that when we see restoration, when we see redemption, when we see the plan of God working out both through the Messiah and his actions, and then what comes to fruition from that, then there is radiance on our face. There is confidence. There is joy. There is assurance even in the midst of the worst earthly things we can imagine. And that's why the righteous trust in God's redemptive power. Many are the afflictions, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. David believes so much in this that he wants to share God's goodness with others. He invites them to experience this themselves. Taste and see that the Lord is good. A few verses later, he's telling them, listen to me, I will instruct you in the fear of the Lord. This is what you do. Dude, this is what you have to do to live this life, to experience what God has planned for you through the good times and the bad. 
And in the end, God's plan will come to be. And it will not be tied up in one moment or another. But we will experience the redemption and the restoration that comes through resurrection. Not one of his bones were broken. But it's not the death of Jesus that then makes this confirmation of Scripture a matter of hope and joy for us. It is the fact that his body came out of the grave. The one who takes refuge in the Lord is redeemed. He is saved from all his troubles. Jesus gave himself over to the Lord. Into your hands I commit my spirit, he said. He gives himself to the Father to accomplish the Father's will. He is beaten and he is hung on a cross. He dies. He is put in the ground. And yet, by the power and the glory of the Father, he is raised up on the third day in newness of life. Where he will ultimately ascend to the Father to return to his place and promise us a place on his throne. If we will just do what David says here, to fear the Lord, to walk in his ways, to take refuge in him and trust in his redemption, to trust that whatever afflictions may come, God is so powerful that they could be so much worse, but he protects us from the worst of them. He keeps his bones. Not one of them is broken. And all that happens with Jesus, he, he doesn't even suffer the worst of this with his body, and yet it is resurrected in the, final, in, the, the, in the third day so that we have a promise of resurrection on the final day. And so the things that we suffer and the problems that we face are not the end. They're only a moment. And they are working for us a far greater reward. I couldn't read Psalm 34 without thinking of Psalm 46, which is very similar in nature. But it also ties in, I think, maybe a little more clearly, this idea of hope, of the dwelling place of God and being with Him. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her, will help her when morning dawns. This is the glory of God's presence. But he is here to help. He is near. And that salvation and deliverance, they're not caught up in fixing all of our earthly problems and troubles and difficulties. But in the hope of the glory of being with God forever in his city. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. It could be that your spirit is crushed this morning that you see no way out of your struggles and your difficulties, and that could very well be the case. In an earthly way, sometimes that's what happens. There are no answers. But the fullness of life is not just about what happens here. It's about 
a relationship with God that's going to last through eternity. And so all those terrible things happen, some of which I mentioned earlier, and we face those and we struggle through them and we sorrow and we grieve. But there'll be no tears in heaven. There'll be no more sorrow, no more crying. All will be joy. And there'll be no need for light because the glory of the Lord will shine upon us. And we will spend an eternity with him in joy and gladness and rejoicing. Will you give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? Become part of the righteous and have this hope? We'll invite you to do that. Why don't you come now as we stand and we sing together?